my friend Jeremy is described by his family as the luckiest guy in the world. When he was young, in his teens and twenties, it wouldn't matter how bad he messed something up or ignored something important. Everything always seemed to work out for him in the end. Like I said, very lucky guy. I remember he bought his first car, a used Camaro. And he didn't check the oil like he should have, and the engine seized up. Everyone thought that car was dead. Well, he put oil in it again, and it started right up. They checked the compression, and there were no problems. He ended up selling the car for more than he bought it for. This kind of stuff happened to him all the time. It actually took him a long time to learn responsibility because no matter what he did, hard work or no work, everything always worked out. His dad was so frustrated. He'd say, I can't teach him any life lessons because he never has any consequences. I'm afraid one day something really bad is going to happen to him and he's not going to know why or how to get out of it. But he lives such a charmed life, nothing bad ever happens to him. Even when something does seem to be a setback, he just lets it roll off of him like water off a duck because he knows it'll work out in the end. Now, some people might say that Jeremy has a blessed life. Now, maybe he just has a good attitude about the good and the bad in life. Maybe he's just lucky, you know, compared to many of us to, who have to work and position ourselves to make our own luck. But regardless of the reason why, it's not a stretch to say that any one of us ordinary folks uh, would want to have a blessed life like Jeremy. But really, there are bigger blessings in life than luck. Blessings that are not due to chance, and anyone can receive them. Peter is an ordinary man, a fisherman disciple, and he's blessed. Let's recap what we've learned about Peter so far. Peter was a sinful man, but Jesus still called him. Peter was a family man who invited other people into God's family. Peter was an obedient man who walked with Jesus. Today we'll see Peter was a blessed man because he recognized Jesus. Let's read our passage today, Matthew 16, 13 through 20. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. In this passage, we see Peter receive three incredible blessings. Peter's still just an ordinary guy, a fisherman disciple, who is blessed because he recognizes Jesus. The first blessing Peter receives is revelation. 
early in 2021, a topic of conversation often has been about the COVID-19 vaccinations. There are various news sources about the vaccines and some news sources are less trustworthy than others. Some information seems to be pure fear-mongering with no data to back it up. Others are making it an instant miracle cure that will put everything back to normal. And that's not the case either. We have a real challenge to find the truth. Now, I'd like to commend my congregation members and members of our community at large because the people I've spoken to seem to be using common sense and working to find credible sources, even though there may be disagreement on the overall issue of COVID-19. There are a lot of things to consider. There are health issues, both personal and public. There are ethical and moral issues, from disproportional health care to where the vaccines originated. For me, before giving any opinion of my own, when I'm having this conversation with someone, I usually start with the question, what do you think about the vaccines? How are you feeling? What have you heard? This is the same thing that Jesus is doing in Matthew 16. Only instead of asking about a vaccination, Jesus is asking about himself. He asks his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? The Son of Man is referred to multiple times in the Hebrew Bible. But Jesus is not asking a theological question about the Old Testament Son of Man. Jesus has referred to himself as the Son of Man multiple times before this conversation. So Jesus is again claiming to be the prophesied Son of Man and really saying, who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? And the disciples have a lot of answers that they've heard. And some may seem to be really out there to us. Some people think Jesus is John the Baptist. At first, that seemed the most crazy one to me because everyone would know that John and Jesus were contemporaries, about the same age, and had been seen in public together. How can Jesus be John? But this also makes sense because many people rightly saw Jesus' ministry as a continuation of what John started. John had prepared the way for Jesus. John himself said, I must decrease so that he, Jesus, may increase. John sent his own disciples to follow Jesus. John, at this time, is dead, but Jesus is out preaching with that same power and authority. People probably said something like, the spirit that empowered John now empowers Jesus, just as the spirit passed from Elijah to Elisha. Other people reached further back to the ancient prophets when they thought of who Jesus might be. Perhaps that prophetic power of Elijah was now on Jesus. And Elijah didn't die, but was taken up into heaven in a fiery chariot. Perhaps Jesus is Elijah returned. Some people thought Jesus may be Jeremiah, or at least like Jeremiah, who preached before and into the exile in Babylon. Now, instead of Babylon, Jesus is the prophet to the people under Rome. It seems there was quite a list of potential prophets that people thought Jesus was like, or maybe thought he was actually the return of. So having heard all the answers, Jesus focuses on his question. Okay, that's what the people out there say, but you guys, my disciples, you know me. You spend every day with me. Who do you think I am? Here's where Peter speaks up. Peter is sure who Jesus is. 
He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter answers both the theological question of who the prophesied son of man is and the current question of who Jesus is. The son of man is the Messiah, the promised savior and redeemer of God's people Israel, the anointed king of Israel. The son of man is also divine, the one and only of the living God of Israel. And the son of man is the man, Jesus, who was standing there talking to Peter and the disciples. Peter recognizes who Jesus is. And Jesus, not insulting Peter's deductive reasoning skills, says, Peter, that's not something that just anyone can figure out. Figuring out clearly who the Son of Man is and recognizing that the Son of Man was standing right there in front of him takes more than human intelligence, but supernatural guidance. No human could have figured that out, but any human that God the Father reveals the connections to will figure it out. The blessing is that God the Father has opened the mind of Peter so that he can see spiritual things and at least a portion of the plan of God to save the world. Peter has the blessing of divine revelation. Have you ever had a teacher that was so good that if anyone else had tried to explain the concept to you, you wouldn't have understood it? I had a math teacher once that I and my classmates just didn't understand. Events happened such that our whole class got switched to a different math teacher, and the whole learning experience changed. We understood. There are people like me, and maybe you, who became followers of Jesus, the Messiah, at a young age. There's a reason Jesus says it takes faith as a child to follow him. Once we get our adult rational mind, the claims of Jesus are more difficult to accept and even understand. I must never forget that it is extraordinary, miraculous, and supernatural to say the divine God became fully human, that fully human God died on a cross, that fully human dead God came back to life, that fully human dead and risen God, by his perfect life and sacrificial death, paid the price for my disobedience and that of the whole human race of all time, and that all he asks of me is to accept that in faith and call him who he is, God, Lord of all. All that only makes sense if God the Father has opened up my mind and revealed the sense of it to me. It's a blessing to recognize who Jesus is because who Jesus is is not revealed by great preaching but by a great God who may choose to use great preaching or a simple conversation or people simply reading the Bible together. That is both a struggle and a hope of sharing Jesus with other people. I do need to know the message of the good news of salvation through Jesus and be able to share it. But no matter how articulate and persuasive I am, I can't make anyone understand. But that's okay because God the Father can bless anyone with revelation of Jesus at any time. I'm like Philip in the chariot with the Ethiopian. I'm just there to help out what God is already doing in the mind of somewhere, someone else. Peter's an ordinary guy, a fisherman disciple, blessed because he recognizes Jesus. The first blessing is revelation, and the second blessing is a foundation. Verse 18, 
And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I'm going to tell you up front, there is not universal agreement in the Christian church as to what these next two blessings are, but I'm going to try and give us a clear perspective on them and practical application. There is some wordplay going on in Jesus' response to Simon. Simon's second name, or perhaps nickname, that Jesus may have given him right there in that moment, is Peter. The name Peter means rock. Simon Peter is the original Rocky. Jesus literally says, Simon, you are rock, and on this rock I will build my assembly. The only difference between the two times Jesus says rock is the gender of the word. Rock in Greek is a feminine word, but since Simon is a man, Jesus changes the word to a masculine form, when referring to Simon. The big question here is on which rock will Jesus build? On Peter or on the truth that Peter has stated? Roman Catholic doctrine states that Peter is the rock on which the church is built because Peter is the chief of the apostles and the first leader of the church. However, in other passages, Jesus refers to himself as the foundation, the chief cornerstone, and on that we are to build on, and nothing else. Matthew 21, 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is what the Lord has done, and it's wonderful in our eyes. In that passage, he's referring to himself. Peter also affirms this when he preaches at Pentecost in Acts 4, 11 through 12. He says, Jesus is the stone which... You builders, which has be, uh, excuse me, rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Later, the Apostle Paul would affirm Jesus as the foundation in his letter to Corinth, 1 Corinthians 3.11. For no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. See, Peter is solid, but Jesus is the foundation. By recognizing Jesus, Peter has not become the foundation, but has become strong because he has the foundation of Jesus the Messiah. I watched a documentary about the Leaning Tower of Pisa in Italy. The Italians are doing expensive work to keep the tower from completely falling over. There are several problems. First, they don't want to completely straighten the tower. No one would come to visit the straight tower of Pisa. Second, the tower wasn't built with enough foundation. It was only 10 feet deep. Third, the land isn't fit for building heavy towers. Pisa comes from the Greek word meaning marshy land. The leaning tower of Pisa, to me, exemplifies human nature. Let's build something crooked on a weak foundation and on earth with no bedrock, just because it looks pretty. The divine nature says, I will build something upright on a rock that has a foundation. The thing the divine nature builds is the church, a body so firm that not even the power of Hades can knock it over. Hades in Jesus' time is not necessarily thought of as the realm of the devil or Satan. Hades is the realm of the dead. While Jesus may be alluding to evil spiritual forces, he is most certainly saying that death cannot overcome his people. Jesus will break the gates of death. 
Jesus removes the curse of death. People who recognize Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God, will live. If the stone, the rock, the foundation is Jesus, not Peter, then this is a blessing that everyone can have. Everyone is invited to be a disciple of Jesus. Peter's an ordinary guy, a fisherman disciple, blessed because he recognizes Jesus. You know, the first blessing is revelation. The second is a foundation. And the third is keys. Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. This third blessing of keys is also debated in the Christian church. We have to figure out two things. First, who is getting the keys? And second, what are the keys for? As to who, when Jesus says, I will give you the keys, the word you is singular. So from the context, the two choices for who gets the keys are Peter or the church. As with the foundation, the Roman Catholic Church says Peter gets the keys. And we Protestants say that the church gets the keys. Grammatically, a case can be made for either. What are the keys for? Jesus says they are for locking something up or setting something free. This used to me makes sense uh, that the case would be that the keys are for the whole church, not just for Peter's use. If they were just for Peter that this authority is useless for us now. Unless one also believes that when Jesus gave the keys to Peter, that included the authority for Peter to pass along the keys to someone else. And that is also a belief uh, in the Roman Catholic Church. And that's how they get the office of Pope. In the Roman Catholic tradition, the Pope is the latest person to have the authority of the keys to bind and loose in earth and heaven. Here's the counter to Peter being the sole possessor of the keys. Jesus speaks in other places about things being bound and loosed and doesn't limit that authority to Peter. In Matthew 18, 15 through 20, Jesus speaks of believers in general holding other believers accountable for their sins and seeking restoration. Jesus specifically says when we practice discipline within the church, it is a binding and loosing. After the resurrection, in John 20, 19-23, Jesus gives all the disciples authority to forgive or retain someone's sins. Again, this is binding or freeing. Lastly, in Matthew 12, 22-29, Jesus, speaking on freeing someone from an unclean spirit, um, an authority which he has given to all his disciples in Matthew 10, Jesus says that the unclean spirit or demon is like a strong man that must be bound. To me, the weight of biblical evidence is that the authority to bind and loose things in the physical and spiritual realms is an authority given to the whole of Jesus' church. It parallels the authority first given to humans at creation. Humans were created, physical and spiritual, to be God's imagers and given dominion or authority over God's created realm. Just as Jesus breaks the curse of death, Jesus also restores human authority. One of the jobs I had when I was younger was managing school bus transportation for a citywide school district. One of the transportation issues I had to deal with 
was overflow students. This is when a student's area school is full and we have to transport them to a different school. Usually this was worked out between the schools and I would just get contacted by a school secretary when a student needed transportation. Because I had um, all the school secretaries calling me, I generally knew which schools had opening in which grades. That was different information than the secretaries had. What they had was a list that said, if we are full in a certain grade, first I call school A, then if they are full, I call school B and on down the list. For each school, there would be a different order depending on their location and the borderlines of their neighborhood zones. The next school on the list would be the school closest to their school, but not necessarily the school closest to the student's home. One day, I got a call from a mother to arrange transportation from her son. He was overflowed all the way from the west side of town to a school on the east side of town. I got their address, and then I said to her, wait a minute, what school did they tell you was your home school? And she said, school A. I looked at the map and saw she lived right on the borderline of school zones. If she had lived on the other side of the street, they would have sent her son to a school that, that was less than a half mile from her house. But they had just moved into town, and mom didn't know that school C was actually closer to their house than their district-defined home school. And it was definitely closer than going miles and miles across town. I said to her, I think school C has room in your son's grade. Would you like me to call and find out? Um, if they have space, he could go to his neighborhood school and wouldn't have to ride the bus at all. You could drive him, or you're actually so close he could walk. She said that would be wonderful. So I called the school. They had room, and they transferred the student. Everyone was happy. And then I realized something. See, although I was in charge of transportation, I didn't actually work for the school district. My school bus company was contracted by the school district. And all of a sudden I was thinking, what authority did I have to transfer students? I immediately walked over to the main offices of the school district to talk with my liaison. And I said, I think I did something that I didn't have the authority to do. And I want to make sure I let you know before you hear it from someone else. Then I explained the transfer situation. The district officer said, Paul, you did exactly what you were supposed to do. You have the authority to make those connections just like you did. Good job. Here's the thing for us as followers of Jesus. We have the authority to bind and loose. When presented with the situation, it may feel natural to take the authority. But perhaps we as church leaders have failed to tell all believers you have the authority and how to use the authority. This is not some nebulous thing, but it's very practical. If we as the church have been practicing the authority of the keys, we may not have had so many recent high-profile scandals in leadership, the most recent being Ravi Zacharias. It's accountability. That's the first power of the keys, accountability. The church does not have the authority to hold the President of the United States or Congress or the Supreme Court, or the governor, or the police, or Big Pharma, or Amazon, or Big Oil, or whoever accountable. Now, as a citizen of a representative republic, yes, I can try and hold my leaders and society to some standards.
But as a member of the church, and I say this as a member, not just as a pastor, I have the authority and responsibility to hold other members of the church, especially my local church and my denomination, accountable so that Jesus' people are free from sin. If they do sin, I'm to work to bring them to forgiveness. Those are the keys to loose and bind. The second power of the keys is to bind unclean spirits and free people. It's the same authority Jesus gave his disciples during his time on earth. Ephesians 6, 12-13 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this, of this darkness, against evil, against spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. With this authority, I would say we need to be more careful. When doing deliverance ministry, Jesus never sent his disciples out alone. And Acts 19, 13 through 16 describes people casting out evil spirits that were not properly equipped and they were physically attacked by the possessed person. So we have the authority, but it's not an authority that we use lightly. I want everyone to hear me clearly as I address, as I address things that we do not have authority over. I'm not saying we don't take a stand for godly principles in society. And I'm not saying that we don't work for social justice. What I'm saying is I shouldn't expect ungodly people to change to godly behavior until God reveals himself to them. But I should expect God's people to act godly. I'm saying I'm not at war with non-Christians, but I am at war with the spiritual forces behind the evil I see in the world. Just as was said to me in, in my ordination, I can now say to all other Christians, take authority. Just be sure you're taking authority in the right realm. In light of all this, the blessings of revelation, the foundation, and the keys, our final verse, Matthew 16, 20, is interesting. Jesus orders his disciples not to tell anyone he's the Messiah. Why would he say this? In fact, even the demons Jesus has been casting out recognize him as the Messiah, and he's been telling them to keep quiet as well. We have to recognize the time in which Jesus is speaking. It is not yet time for Jesus to be publicly proclaimed the Messiah. Jesus is not finished with his ministry. Jesus is not done fulfilling all the laws and prophecy. Now, Jesus will be proclaimed Messiah when he enters Jerusalem at the start of Passover, what we call Palm Sunday. After the resurrection, Jesus will command all disciples to proclaim him Messiah. But at the time of Peter's recognition, it's not yet time. But the time is now. Let's bring the life of Jesus to our community, to our friends, to our family, to our neighbors. Jesus has already said, death can't win. Let's pray together from Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day they pour out speech. Night after night they communicate knowledge. Their message has gone out to the whole earth, and their words to the end of the world. Lord, as creation declares you, may we, your people, do the same. May we do so with authority, with a strong foundation, that you may reveal be revealed to everyone who does not know you. And we ask this in the name of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Amen. I leave you with this blessing. 
Now may the Lord remember us and bless us, for he blesses all those who fear the Lord, both small and great alike.